hands. Hands is what we're talking about today. We're talking about the hands of Jesus. He said, see my hands. And what did his hands have in them? They had the marks of the cross, of course. Reach out your hand, he says to Thomas. Put it into my side. So that's what we're talking about here today. And the title is How Jesus Heals the World. How Jesus Heals the World. You know, hands are very important, obviously. Uh, I cut my thumb this week. Uh, and You don't have to have a tremendous amount of sympathy for me because it was my own stupid fault. Um, and I was um, cooking and on the phone, I think, at the same time and washing up, you know, that sort of thing you're doing all the domestic stuff all at once. And I put my my right hand into the washing up bowl and did the thing you're never supposed to do when there are knives in there and um, a can of tomato, chopped tomatoes and the lid was in there. And I, put, I, I, I raked my thumb along the side of the lid of the chopped tomato tin that was in there. And the water was uh, turned from a nice clear color to a red color. And it was jolly painful. And I... I I did. I got my thumb out of there and and immediately wrapped it in a tea towel, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And then I had to go in the dish, into the washing machine. Um, and then, of course, my doctor wasn't at home, so I had to look after myself. And I, I managed to get some press, you know, some force on it. And and then I got other things on. It. And then Penny came and she put a plaster and things on it. And it's sort of healing up now. And it's not exactly the biggest deal in the world. But I just when you do something on your hand, though. You, you realize how much you take for granted what your hand does. So I had to keep my hand, my thumb straight uh, for a day or two, most of the time. And every because when I bent it, it bled and also it hurt. And so I, you know, all the th times when you flex your thumb and you're not even thinking about it, I, it just struck me how, how fortunate I am that I have hands that work properly, at least most of the time. So we're going to talk about hands today in the hands of Jesus. Tell me some things. Tell me what are some things that in the scriptures we know from the Bible, what are some of some things that the hands of Jesus touched? Food. They touched food. They did. Yes. That's right. Bread and fish. Which Bread, fish specifically. Alice says feet washing. Yes, yes. They touched, his hands touched feet. Simon, the coffin of the leper uh the coffin of the young man yes i think you're talking about the old leper as well yes okay the man at the pool bill yeah that's right yeah john five right a person with leprosy mud mud <laughs> yes getting the mud stick it on that man's eyes to heal him yeah water and wine mulligan thank you yes that's right he touched water he touched wine wood of a cross that he carried Okay, he carried the beam of the cross, yeah. Tables in the temple, Asagi, thank you. What's that mulligan again? The floor to draw a line. Okay, in the dust, in the dirt. He drew, he drew, he drew on the, uh, on the ground there. He touched people. He touched, a he touched Lazarus, yes, okay. Bread, Alice, that's right. Did he touch the coin when he said, look at whose head is on here? Someone gave him a coin, is that right? Did it say they gave him a coin? I'll have to look it up. Someone can look it up. I think you may be right. Did they present a coin or give it to him? If so, he did touch um, a coin, if that's the case. 
Uh, Barry says the cross. That's right. Yep. He touched the cross for sure. The mouth of a fish. He pulled, oh, he pulled the coin. Somebody pulled a coin from the mouth of the fish. Was it Jesus? <laughs> he touched a sliced ear, Asagi. Yes. <laughs> when when the ear of Malchus was sliced off, right? And then he touched it to heal it. Tears, nails. Mulligan says nails. Yeah, he touched the nails. They touched him. He touched them. Wood. Yeah, that's right. Touched many things with his hands. The cup of wine. Yes, that's right. Barry uh, or Kate. Thank you. Tools. Yeah, I mean, he must have touched tools, being someone who was uh, effectively a carpenter, carpenter builder type. He touched the disciples, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yes, lots of people, disciples, children, right? He held children. He touched our hearts deep. Okay, deep there. Thank you, the making sense. He touched hearts. He does. His hands were used meaningfully to help so many people and that's what we're going to be talking about today and i put some scriptures in the um chat box there we won't go through those right now but just to say he touched so many people and he brought through that touch so much healing to people so much healing you could say emotionally um you think in particular of some of the people that hadn't been touched like a leper in touching the leper he does heal him but he also brings that sense of reassurance of safety, of acceptance, of love to that person. So there's there's that emotional uh, healing of touch, there's a spiritual healing of touch, and there is a physical healing of touch. He brings healing in so many different ways. It's so inspiring. Now, I've been thinking about healing a bit because, well, apart from the fact I'm married to a doctor, which I so I've been thinking about that for the last 30-odd years, but I also read this book not so long ago, which had a profound impact on me and is written by a doctor who's now uh, deceased, but um, I'll put it in the um, chat box in a minute. It's, it's called Fearfully and Wonderfully, and it's a book written by Philip Yancey that many of us may have read, read books by him, and Dr. Paul Brand. It's written in the voice of Dr. Paul Brand based on his own writings, his letters, and his conversations with Philip Yancey when he knew him. The subtitle is the, the Marvel of Bearing God's Image. So it's written by a doctor about the way in which the human body inspires his faith in God and his trust in God and his wonder at who God is. Because he understands the human body so well, he sees the way that God is so wonderful in the way that God made the human body. And his particular twist, if you like, on all this is that he was a groundbreaking hand surgeon working with leprosy patients. Now, most of us, I guess, will know that when, if you have leprosy, you lose your, your uh, <clears throat> excuse me, sense of touch, and therefore you do a lot of damage to your body in many parts of the body, in particular the extremities like the feet and the hands. And Dr. Paul Brand was the uh, child of missionaries who served in India for a very long time. And after getting his medical degree in the UK back around just before the first, the Second World War and around, he served in hospitals during the Second World War as a junior doctor. He went back out to India and lived there the majority of his adult life, pioneering surgery techniques for lepers and indeed is, is credited with perhaps having the biggest impact on attitudes towards leprosy in India of any single uh, Westerner, at least. He's a remarkable chap, and I thoroughly enjoyed his book and can recommend it. It's, um, I'll just read you a little bit from the back cover to give you a bit of context. 
Um, illustrated with stories from Dr. Brand's groundbreaking career as a hand surgeon who changed the lives of leprosy sufferers by transforming medical treatment protocols, this lively narrative paints an unforgettable portrait of the incredible unity of the human body in its trillions of parts. He uh, worked with a leprosy mission in India for um, decades. He became a world-renowned hand surgeon and his pioneering work with leprosy patients earned him numerous awards and honours. A truly remarkable person in his skills, but also in his heart, which comes out in the book. So what I thought I'd do today is a little bit different, is I'm going to read us, really as the main part of the lesson today, the final chapter in the book. And the different sections of the book focus on different parts of the body and his insights. But then he has, a, I suppose, a kind of summary chapter, short chapter at the end of the book, which I'd like to read for us. And this is not what one would normally do with a sermon. So I will try something a bit different and I'm just going to read it. I'm going to ask us to do our best to stay attentive as best we can with this while I read this to us. And then I have a couple of thoughts at the end, at the end and then uh, we'll take communion together. So without further ado, let me read you the final chapter from the book. And think about the healing hands of Jesus as we go through this. Oh, by the way, one word of warning. It is a little bit gory, one or two spots. So um, prepare yourselves for that. Uh, no, nothing disgusting, but definitely a little bit gory. He writes this. To my mind, Nothing in all of nature rivals the human hand's combination of strength and agility, tolerance and sensitivity. Our finest activities, art, music, writing, healing, depend upon hands. In my surgical career, I have specialised in the human hand. Naturally, then, when I think of the Incarnation, I visualise the hands of Jesus. I can hardly conceive of God taking on the form of an infant, yet... Jesus entered our world with the tiny, jerky hands of a newborn, with miniature fingernails and wrinkles all around the knuckles and soft skin that had never known abrasion or roughness. The hands that made the sun and stars, said G.K. Chesterton, were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle. Too small as well to change his own clothes or put food in his mouth, the Son of God experienced infant helplessness. Since I have worked as a carpenter, I can easily imagine the hands of the young Jesus as he learned the trade in his father's shop. His skin must have developed calluses and tender spots. He felt pain. Gratefully, I am sure. Carpentry is a precarious profession for my leprosy patients, who lack the warning of pain that allows them to use tools with sharp edges and rough handles. Then came the hands of the physician. The Bible tells us strength flowed out of them when Jesus healed people. He chose not to perform miracles en masse, but rather one by one, touching each person he healed. He touched eyes that had long since dried out, and suddenly they admitted light and colour. He touched a woman with a hemorrhage, knowing that by Jewish law she would make him unclean. He touched people with leprosy, people no one would touch in those days. In small and personal ways, Jesus' hands were setting right what had been disrupted in his beloved creation. The most important scene in Jesus' life also involved his hands. Those hands that had done so much good were taken one at a time and pierced through with a thick spike. My mind balks at visualising the scene. 
I have spent my life cutting into hands, delicately with scalpel blades that slice through one layer of tissue at a time to expose the maze of nerves and blood vessels and bones and tendons and muscles inside. I have conducted treasury hunts inside splayed hands, searching for healthy tendons to attach to fingers that have been useless for 20 years. I know what crucifixion must do to a human hand. Executioners of that day drove their spikes through the wrist, directly through the carpal tunnel that houses finger-controlling tendons and the median nerve. It is impossible to force a spike there without crippling the hand into a claw shape. Jesus had no anaesthetic. He allowed those hands to be marred and crippled and destroyed. Later, his weight hung from them, tearing more tissue, releasing more blood. There could be no more helpless image than that of God's son hanging paralyzed from a tree. Heal yourself, the crowd jeered. He had saved others, why not himself? The disciples who had hoped he was the Messiah cowered in the darkness or drifted away. Surely they had been mistaken. In one last paroxysm of vulnerability, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The humiliation of incarnation ended, the sentence served, it was finished. But the biblical record gives us one more glimpse of Jesus' hands. He makes an appearance in a locked room where the disciple Thomas was still disputing the story he thinks his friends have concocted. People do not rise from the dead, he scoffs. In, it must have been a ghost or an illusion. Without warning, unannounced, Jesus enters and holds out those unmistakable hands. The body has changed. It can pass through walls and locked doors. The scars, however, remain. Proof that he is the very one whom they saw crucified. Jesus invites Thomas to come and trace the scars with his own fingers. Overwhelmed, he says simply, my Lord and my God. The first record of one of Jesus' disciples calling him God directly. Significantly, it's an encounter with Jesus' wounds that sparks the epiphany. Why did Christ keep his scars? He could have had a perfect body, or no body, when he returned to the splendour in heaven. Instead, he kept a remembrance of his visit to earth, and for a keepsake of his time here, he chose scars. The pain of humanity became the pain of God. Do we somehow miss the revolution that Jesus set loose? Ancient myths told of the heavens above affecting the earth below. Like kids tossing rocks off highway bridges onto the cars below, the gods dropped judgment and mischief on the earth in the form of rain, earthquakes, thunderbolts. Now the ancient formula has reversed. As above, so below becomes as below, so above. Human actions, such as prayer, affect heaven. Reflecting on the Incarnation, the author of Hebrews notes the progression of intimacy between God and human beings from the Old Testament style of approaching a distant God through a priest on to Jesus' up-close visitation. He concludes, Hebrews 4.16, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The head never needs to be awakened or enlightened, and no lack of wisdom or power limits God's activity on earth. The limitation hinges upon member cells obeying the head in order to serve the rest of the body. Today, because Jesus turned over the mission, God's tendrils of activity reach out across the globe. 
His followers would take the message of grace and compassion and justice to places he never visited, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In his life cut short, after all, Jesus had done nothing for most of the world, and that was the plan all along. More than 30 times, the New Testament reminds us that we are followers of Christ's that we are his followers are Christ's body, the visible presence of God in the world. Where we go, God goes. I have searched the four Gospels to observe how Jesus prepared for the new phase of headship, and a trend does emerge. During his three years of ministry, Jesus gradually turned over his work to his disciples. At first, his own hands did the healing, exercising, ministering to needs. As the time of his death neared, Jesus concentrated more on training those who would be left behind. A few key events stand out. I'm sending him out like lambs among wolves, he warned them, Luke 10, 1 to 24. Then he, thus he began to entrust sacred tasks to a ragtag group of six dozen novices. Despite the stern warnings, the 72 met with a great success on their mission, and Jesus responded enthusiastically, I know of no other scene that shows Jesus so full of joy. The work of the kingdom had advanced even as Jesus himself waited alone. Later, at the very end of his earthly life, Jesus turned over the entire mission, a transfer that occurred at the Last Supper. I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, Jesus said that night, Luke 22, verse 29. From that point on, he, was mainly, he, mainly, he has mainly relied on the self-limiting style of working through human cells. Clearly, God seems to prefer delegating authority to us humans. As a junior doctor on night duty at a London hospital, I called on an 81-year-old Mrs. Twig. Although this courageous woman was battling cancer of the throat, she remained witty and cheerful. In her raspy voice, she asked that we do all we could to prolong her life. And so one of my professors removed her larynx and the malignant tissue around it. Mrs. Twig seemed to be making a good recovery until at two o'clock in the morning when I got an urgent summons to her ward. She was sitting on the bed, leaning forward with blood spilling from her mouth. Her face showed an expression of terror. I guessed immediately that an artery at the back of her throat had eroded. I knew no way to stop the bleeding except to thrust my finger into her mouth and press on the pulsing spot. Grasping her jaw with one hand, I explored with my index finger deep inside her slippery throat until I found the artery and pressed it shut. Nurses cleaned up around her face while Mrs. Twig recovered her breath and fought, fought back a gagging sensation. Fear slowly drained from her as she began to trust me. After ten minutes had passed and she was breathing normally again with her head tilted back, I tried to remove my finger to replace it with an instrument, but I could not see far enough back in her throat to guide the instrument, and each time I removed my finger the blood spurted afresh and Mrs. Twig panicked. Her jaw trembled, her eyes bulged, and she gripped my arm fiercely. Finally, I calmed her by saying I would simply wait with my, feast, my finger blocking the blood flow until a surgeon and anaesthetist could be called in from their homes. We settled into position, my right arm crooked behind her head, supporting it. My left hand nearly disappeared inside her contorted mouth, allowing my index finger to apply pressure at the critical point. From visits to the dentist, I knew how fatiguing and painful it must be for tiny Mrs. Twig to stretch her mouth wide enough to surround my hand, yet I could see in her intense blue eyes a resolve to maintain that position as long as necessary. With her face a few inches from mine, I could sense her mortal fear. 
Even her breath smelled of blood. Her eyes pleaded mutely, don't move, don't let go. She knew as I did that if we relaxed our awkward posture, she would bleed to death. We sat like that for nearly two hours. Her imploring eyes never left mine. Twice during that first hour, when muscle cramps painfully seized my hand, I tried to move to see if the bleeding had stopped. It had not. And as Mrs. Twig felt the rush of warm liquid surge up in her throat, she coughed and grasped my shoulder like a vice. I will never know how I lasted that second hour. My muscles cried out in agony. My fingertips grew numb. I thought of rock climbers who have held their fallen partners for hours by a single rope. In this case, the cramping four-inch length of my finger, so numb I could not even feel it, was the strand that kept life from falling away. I, a junior doctor in my twenties, and this 81-year-old woman clung to each other superhumanly because we had to. Her survival depended on it. The surgeon came. Assistants prepared the operating room and the anaesthetist readied these chemicals. Orderlies wheeled Mrs. Twig and me, still entwined in our strange embrace, into surgery. There, with everyone poised with gleaming tools, I slowly eased my finger away from her throat. For the first time, I felt no gush of blood. Was it because my finger no longer had sensation? Or had the blood finally clotted? After two hours of pressure, I removed my hand from her mouth, and still Mrs. Twig breathed easily. My hand continued to, her hand continued to clutch my shoulder, and her eyes locked on mine. Gradually, almost imperceptibly, the corners of her bruised, stretched lips curled slightly up, forming the hint of a smile. The clot had held. She could not speak. She had no larynx. But she needed no words to express her gratitude. She knew how my muscles had suffered. I knew the depths of her fear. In those two hours in the slumberous hospital wing, we had become almost one person. Forty years later, as I recall that night with Mrs. Twig, it stands as a kind of parable of the conflicting strains of human helplessness and divine power within each of us. During that agonising night, my medical training counted very little. What mattered was my presence and my willingness to respond. Along with most doctors and health workers, I often feel inadequate in the face of real suffering. Pain strikes like a tsunami with sudden devastation. A woman feels a small lump in her breast and fear rushes in. A child is stillborn and, for the parents, life itself seems to stop. A young boy is thrown through the windscreen of a car. His consciousness flickers on and off like a faulty switch. Doctors, ever cautious, offer little hope of recovery. When suffering strikes, those of us standing close, close by, are flattened by the shock. We fight back the lumps in our throats, make visits to the hospital, mumble, mumble a few comforting words, perhaps look up advice on what to say to the grieving. And yet when I later ask patients and their families, what helped you most? Who helped you most? I get an unexpected answer. 
They rarely describe a person with a smooth tongue and a sparkling personality. Instead, they tell me of someone quiet who listens more than talks, who offers practical help when needed, who does not judge or even offer much advice. A sense of presence, they say. Someone there when I needed her. A hand to hold. A sympathetic, bewildered hug. A shared lump in the throat. Confronted with another suffering, we long for formulas as precise as the techniques I study in my surgery manuals. But the human psyche is far too complex for a manual. Sometimes the best we can offer is to be there. To love and to touch. I have written of lessons from the spiritual body, the need to serve the head faithfully, the softness and compliancy of the skin, the diversity of member cells and the marvels that result from their cooperation. Taken together, these provide a sense of presence to the world, God's presence. When Jesus departed, he transferred that presence to the bumbling community of followers who had largely forsaken him at his death. We are what Jesus left behind. He did not leave a book or a doctrinal statement or a system of thought. He left a visible community to embody him and represent God to the world. The seminal metaphor, body of Christ, could only arise after Jesus Christ had left the earth. The Apostle Paul's great decisive words about that body appear in letters addressed to congregations in Corinth and Asia Minor churches in the next breath he assails for their faithlessness. Note that Paul, a master of simile and metaphor, does not say the people of God are like the body of Christ. In every passage he says we are the body of Christ. The Spirit has come and dwelt among us, and the world knows an invisible God, mainly by our representation, our enfleshment of God. Three biblical symbols. God as a glory cloud, as a sun subject to death, and as a spirit melding together a new body, show a progression of intimacy, from fear to shared humanity to shared essence. Where is God in the world? We can no longer point to the Holy of Holies or to a carpenter in Nazareth. We form God's presence through the indwelling of God's Spirit. It is a heavy burden. I show you a mystery, Ephesians 2.22. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. We bear God's image on this planet. After World War II, German students volunteered to help rebuild a cathedral in England, one of many casualties of the Luftwaffe bombings. As the work progressed, debate broke out on how best to restore a large statue of Jesus, with his arms outstretched and bearing the familiar inscription, Come unto me. Careful patching could repair all damage to the statue except for Christ's hands, which had been destroyed by bomb fragments, should they attempt the delicate task of reshaping those hands. The work has reached a decision that still stands today. The statue of Jesus has no hands, and the inscription now reads, Christ has no hands but ours. Well, 
We are the body of Christ. Christ has no hands but ours. What can we do with our hands to bring Christ to the world, to bring healing? A Spanish nun, Teresa of Aliva, wrote this. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ looks with compassion into our world. Yours are the feet with which Christ walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which Christ blesses the world. There's a lot of confusion in our world today about God, about what this world is about. There's a lot of pain in our world today, not just COVID, but many other issues for us personally and in our world. There's no magic bullet and there's no work or thing that God is going to do without us. We are Christ's hands. The healing and the comfort that Adam and Kirsty need is going to come through the hands of Christ's body, through the voices of Christ's body, through us. The, the support and encouragement that Jane's mum needs is going to come through Jane and through people like us. The support that any of us need as we go through our own challenges is going to come by sharing the burden together as a body. Our neighbours who need our love and who need more than our love, they need the love of God, the love of Christ, our neighbours out here where I am, where you are. They need us. They need God, but they need God through us, Christ through your hands and mine. And this is costly. There's no question about that. It takes effort. It takes time. And it take, takes something out of us when we give to others. But we do it because we trust God. Like Jesus trusted God. Jesus put himself in the hands of his heavenly father when he went to the cross. And even on the cross, he trusted God. Luke 23, 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. So we can trust the Father. We're in his hands. Those are safe hands. How does Jesus heal the world? Well, first, he offered his own hands to be nailed to the cross so that we could be healed. But how does Jesus now heal the world? He sends us out with our hands to bring his healing to others. Let's spend some time thinking about in what way God is going to call you and me and being aware of and asking God to show us how we can be his healing power through our hands, our voices, our feet into this world in the coming few days. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus was willing to come and share our existence here on this earth, to live a messy life, to live amongst the pain and the dirt of our existence. Those tiny hands of Jesus as a child grew into being hands that were productive in the carpenter's shop and then became, they became conductors of your love and power into the people around him who needed healing. 
we thank you that he used his hands for the healing of others in the service of others and didn't use his power and his the hands the power in his hands to serve himself thank you that he touched the leper thank you that he touched the coffin that the dead man was on thank you that he touched the bleeding woman thank you for all the wonderful things he did and thank you that because of his trust in you father that we have that healing available to us, that we have reconciliation with you. And we pray, Father, that as we take bread and wine, handed to his disciples through his hands, Father, giving them bread, giving them wine, reminding them, telling them that his body was about to be broken, his hands were going to be pierced. In doing that, Father, he offered hope. And we pray that we'll, we'll remember that hope. And even now, Father, as he stands to intercede for us in heaven, he does so with hands that are still scarred. Father, we, as we reflect on this, it gives us hope. It gives us comfort to know that Jesus cares about us this much. Give us the strength this week to care for others in the same way. Our husband, our wife, our children, our neighbours, our colleagues at work, our neighbours, even our enemies, Father. Help us to love and care for them and show them the love of Christ through what we do and what we say. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.